about five o'clock and the bell has rung. Tonight we're talking about immersion in precept. Next week we'll talk about immersion in principle or practice. I do have a handout back here in case anybody hadn't grabbed one already. You're welcome to do so. So we've talked about uh, the church and whether it was a denomination or not. Talked about the Holy Spirit and his role in Christianity today. Uh, talked about authority in the Godhead, authority in the Word, and authority in God's people. And the gift of grace, that being salvation, and the role that faith plays in our salvation. And then we talked about the necessity of obedience, even though salvation is by grace, obedience is required. Talked about the gospel message, and we established then the requirement of repentance and confession. So tonight we're going to talk about baptism, which is something we've mentioned several times in the other topics and verses that we've probably touched, well, not all of them, but several verses that we've touched on already. And we'll hit them just a little bit harder from a different angle. So anytime you're talking about God's plan for man's salvation, you have to talk about baptism. And if you, if you look at the, the world around you and, and the Christian world in general, you get the idea that sprinkling, pouring, or immersing could all be included in baptism. But that's not the case with the word. Uh, the word itself is not that broadly defined. It's much more narrow. Uh, W.E. Vine says baptism is the process of immersion, submersion, and emergence. It is derived from the term that means to dip or plunge or submerge. When, you give, when you're given this explanation, it's not surprising to find that baptism is described in the Bible as a burial. Paul talks about or talks to the Colossians um, in Colossians 2.12 and says that they were buried with him, that is Christ, in baptism. He also said to the Romans, therefore we are buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So in both of those cases, talking about a burial, and when you think about a burial, you, talk, you think about a body that is put into the ground and covered up. You don't just throw dirt on them. You don't just pour dirt on them. You cover them up. And that is the meaning of the term. Now, you may or may not realize that baptize or baptism are neither one or word neither one, words in the English language before. When the individuals were translating the Bible into uh, different languages, English being one of them, they didn't want to fly in the face of the folks that were already sprinkling and pouring. So as opposed to translating the word baptizo into English, which would be to dip or submerge, they transliterated it which means that they created a new word that sounded like the Greek word baptizo. Hence, we have baptize or baptism. So they weren't, those were not real words before. They were words created by the translators in order not to offend anybody that was already practicing what was not really baptism. And yet they were calling it that. So it's a transliteration, or these words are transliterations. But they don't change the meaning of the act. Just because you create a new word doesn't mean that you can create a new 
definition for it. Baptism is a burial. Scripture also depicts baptism as being a place that required much water. In John chapter 3, when it talks about um, John the Baptist baptizing in the Jordan River, it says he was at a place where there was much water. Well, if you're going to sprinkle or pour water, you don't need much water. But you certainly do if you're going to put somebody under the water. Similarly, in Acts chapter 8, 38 and 39, when Philip goes to the eunuch, and they're, they're riding along in the chariot, and it says that they came to a place where there was water, and the eunuch says, here's water, how about if I'm baptized? And, and Philip says, yeah, that's right, you, you certainly may. And they stop the chariot and both go down into the water, and he baptized them, and they both came up out of the water. And that's what the scripture says. Now, why in the world, if you're going to put water on somebody's head, do you go down into the water? That is a nonsensical thing. And people that would advocate that you sprinkle water on somebody's head or you pour a cup of water on somebody's head, you don't go down in the water to do it. Nobody in their right mind does that. But I have seen video... Of, of a movie, I guess, a DVD or whatever, of people going out into the water waist deep and then pouring water on somebody's head. Now, does that make sense? No. I'm not the only one that thinks that doesn't make sense. If you're just going to put water on them, you go down to the edge of the water, you get a cup of water and you pour it on their head. Or you, you get water in your hand, you, you know, sprinkle it on them. You don't need to get in the water. So John the Baptist needed much water. Philip and the eunuch needed enough water that they could both go down into the water and he baptized them and they both come up out of the water. Which matches with the actual definition of the word baptizo, which means to dip, plunge, or submerge. Study of the New Testament teaching on baptism also includes an examination of the proper candidates for baptism. There's certainly confusion in the, in the religious world. Uh, folks will baptize children or infants. But Acts 22.16 says that Paul was guilty of sin. That's why he had to be baptized, to wash away his sins. Well, children don't have sin. Uh, you can go back to um, Ezekiel chapter 18, uh, verse 20, where it says that they don't in inherit the, the father's sins. But the, really the entire chapter of Ezekiel 18 deals with how sin is not passed from the son to the father, the father to the son. Each of us will answer for our own sin. When the man was born blind, his disciples came to Jesus, I think it's in John chapter 9, and they asked, why, why was this individual born blind? Did he sin or his parents? <laughs> and Jesus said, neither one. He was born blind for this day so that I could pour, perform a miracle. Um, children are not born with sin. As they get older and they know right from wrong, they will sin. Then there's a problem. Uh, as far as children goes, Jesus instructed uh, his folks saying that they needed to become like children. Now, if children were covered up in sin, why would he say to his followers they need to become like children? In Matthew chapter 18, 3 through 5. And also he declared, let the little children come to me. Do not forbid them, for such is the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew 19, 14. Why would he say 
if children are covered up in sin, that don't forbid the children to come to me. Don't forbid them because the kingdom of heaven is like this. Like them. Full of sin? No. The absence of sin. You never will find in any of the accounts of Jesus dealing with children in the New Testament that he says your sins are forgiven. And yet over and over and over again, when grown people come to him, he tells them their sins are forgiven. Why? Well, they have sinned. The kids don't. So, candidate for baptism, child's not one. Child doesn't have sin. Individuals are accountable and they have to believe in God's plan. Children can't understand God's plan. Eventually they will. And when they can understand God's plan, it's about the time they start learning right from wrong. And about the time they learn how to hurt God. When they learn how to hurt God, that's the point they sin. That's the point they can understand God's plan. That's the point where they need baptism. That's where you and I are. Now, <clears throat> it's got to be baptism that is immersion. It's also got to be an accountable person that is immersed when they understand and believe in God's plan. And we also need to establish a link between baptism and the blood of Jesus because Acts, or I'm sorry, Ephesians 1.7 says that in giving his blood, Jesus redeems us from our sins and provides forgiveness of sin. So in order to... to have forgiveness of sin in order to be saved we must contact that blood well scripture teaches us that the blood of jesus was shed in his death john 19 34 and that it was shed for the remission of his sins matthew 26 18 and that it was shed to wash away our sins in revelation 1 5 and it was to cleanse our conscience according to hebrews 9 14 a verse that we've studied As a matter of fact all these verses we've touched on except maybe revelation 1 but scripture also teaches that we are baptized into Jesus' death in Romans 6, 3 and 4. That we are baptized for the remission of our sins, Acts 2, 38. That we are baptized to have our sins washed away, Acts 2, or 22, rather, 16. And that we are baptized to cleanse our conscience, 1 Peter 3, 21. So, blood is in death, baptism into death. Uh, blood is for... Remission of sins, baptism for remission of sins. Blood is to wash away our sins, baptize, we are baptized to wash away our sins. We are or the, the death rather, or the blood, is to cleanse our conscience, according to Hebrews, and we are baptized to cleanse our conscience. Here, there's a parallel all the way down through there. Hence, they are equal. We, we are baptized into Jesus' death to contact his blood. And at that point, the sins are washed away. The sins are forgiven. Our conscience are made clean. No wonder Jesus commanded that he who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who believes not will be condemned. So that's kind of describing what baptism is. Now I want to talk just a little bit more in detail about why it's required and what it does for us. So the first couple of verses I'm going to look at in Matthew 28, 16 through 20, and Mark 16, 15 and 16, I'm not going to read them right now, but you might want to turn to them because we're going to, we're going to follow through kind of a study with them. 
These are verses that we have read over and over and over again in this class, so they should be familiar to you. But after following Jesus' death, he told his disciples to go to Galilee, that he would meet them in Galilee. Uh, as a matter of fact, he, <laughs> he tells them a couple of times. In, um, in Matthew 26, verse 32, Jesus tells, him, tells them before his death that after his death and his resurrection, he would, he would meet them in Galilee. Then in verse 20, uh, or chapter 28, verse 7, the angel... The angels tell the women, go tell his apostles, he said to meet him in Galilee, just in case they didn't remember. And then Jesus also, in verse 10 of chapter 28 says, tell them to meet me in Galilee. Mark also records Jesus saying that in Matthew, or I'm sorry, in Mark 14, 28. And the angels are recorded as saying that in Mark uh, 16, verse 7. And then Luke records only the angels saying that to the apostles in Luke 24, 6. So just in case they didn't get it, it was told to them multiple times, go to Galilee. Well, here in Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 and 17, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain that Jesus had told them to go. And they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Jesus opens up with a line that is probably the most important part of this because he says to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So that means Jesus makes the laws. Jesus makes the rules. Jesus sets the parameters. Nobody else has the authority to do that. Jesus has all authority. So unless he delegates it, and he certainly will delegate it to his apostles, but he hasn't done so yet, all authority has been given to him. He's in charge of absolutely everything. Uh, Revelation 17, 14 and Revelation 19, 16 both say that he is Lord of Lord and King of Kings. One says in that order, he is Lord of Lord and King of Kings. The other says it backwards. He is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Same difference. He is over everything, which is exactly what he said here. All authority in heaven and on earth resides with him. Hebrews 1.3 says that he also holds everything together by the word of his power. Now, I don't know about you, but there's not a lot of power in my word. You know, I can say things, I can hope things, I can wish things, I can order things. When I was in the military, I did have some power in my word. And as a supervisor, I had some power in my word but not like this. He holds absolutely everything together, the word of his power. This earth stays in its orbit because of the word of his power. We orbit the sun annually by the word of his power. But not only that, every atom of every element of every mineral of every component of everything is held together by the word of his power. Now, if that doesn't rattle you, you're not thinking through like I am because it boggles my brain that it, his, his word holds all of this together. So what he says goes. He goes on to say, therefore, go. 
make disciples, baptize them, and teach them. Matter of fact, he not only says teach them, he says teach them everything that I have taught you. Now, everything that he had taught them includes go, make disciples, baptize them, and teach them everything I have taught you. Because I've heard people say, well, this is, just given, this is just given to the apostles. Well, yeah, it was. Except that last part where he says, teach them everything I taught you. So if you're somebody that was taught by the apostles, it's incumbent upon you then to turn around and teach others. Go, make disciples, baptize, and teach everything that I taught you. It's his way of passing it down the way. He says that they are to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It's interesting that he does not say, baptize them in the names of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. But rather he says, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I told you this before, too. In the Old Testament, most of the time when you encounter the word God, you encounter a plural. We don't translate it that way. But most of the time, when you're talking about God in the Old Testament, it's a plural word. And yet, the, uh, the, the chant that the Israelites would, would do was that the Lord is one. The Lord our God is one. Knowing full well he was three in one. Gets confusing, doesn't it? But they are so much alike that they are identical. They are so much alike. And so he says, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And what does that mean? It really means by the authority of. You are baptizing somebody by the authority of Jesus. By the authority of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Back, back in the... the Back in the black and white TV days, you know, the, the good guys would, would come after the bad guys and they would say, stop in the name of the law, right? That was, that, was the, that was the deal. Stop in the name of the law. What did that mean? Stop by the authority of the law. Same thing here. We baptize by the authority of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's why oftentimes when we baptize somebody we will say, I now baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit for the forgiveness of your sins, right? That's the typical statement that we make when we baptize somebody. It is by their authority. And I already mentioned that we are to teach everything that he had commanded. Um, and that includes go, make disciples, baptize, and teach everything. So why is this important? It's important because it's not optional. When Jesus said, do it, that's a command. You know, we try to look through our Bibles and we find out what, what Jesus directly commanded us to do, what the apostles directly commanded us to do, and then we look also for examples of what they did. Because everything might not be spelled out in a thou shalt do this and that. For instance, the way we conduct our assembly. When we gather together to worship God, there's nothing that's really spelled out 
do this, 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 and this. At least not in one spot. You have to go to a lot of different places. I think 1 Corinthians chapter 14 is probably the best spot that you can go to if you want to find out kind of how, how a, a, uh, an assembly was done. But you're not going to find a 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. Here's what you got to do and, you know, check them off and, and you're good. Now, I'm not sure if God did that. Well, I'm sure he did it on purpose. But I don't know if he did it so that we dig through his word to find all the things that we're supposed to do. Hence, we're going to have to read more of his word. Or he had some other thing in mind. Maybe that's it. I don't know. But it's not an optional thing. Jesus commanded it. Baptism is required. But not only is baptism a command, it also uh, is described as a new birth or a new creation. And so I want to look at a couple of verses, and I will read these because, well, at least the first one, because I know we haven't touched on it before. Uh, Romans 6, I know we've, we've read through that one several times before, but the first one in John chapter 3. In John chapter 3, uh, Jesus goes to meet with uh, Nicodemus. Uh, Nicodemus comes to him at night. Uh, he is a Pharisee. He is uh, a member of the ruling class, part of the Sanhedrin. He is only mentioned in John, but he's mentioned three times in John. He's mentioned here in chapter 3, where he, he goes to Jesus at night to ask some questions of Jesus. Uh, we can speculate all we want to as why he went at night. We don't really know. It doesn't say, but he went at night. Um, he's also mentioned in, in John chapter 7 and verse 50 where uh, the Pharisees were getting all bent out of shape about Jesus and they were wanting to bring him up on charges and Nicodemus intervenes and says, well, doesn't the law require us to give somebody a hearing before we execute some kind of judgment? And then it says that they all went off to their own house. Um, and then he appears again in John chapter 19 when Joseph of Arimathea goes to take the body of Jesus. He goes to Pilate and he gets permission to take the body of Jesus and bury it. It says Nicodemus also showed up with like 100 pounds of, of perfume to perfume the body. And so he with Joseph of Arimathea take the body of Jesus to be buried. So he's gone a long ways. He's gone a long way from the, the Point where he was going to Jesus to talk to him by night and then sticking up for him in the Sanhedrin and now definitely declaring where you are in respect to Jesus because you're there taking care of his body. And certainly you would not do that if you didn't want to be identified with him. But John chapter 3, the, the encounter there, I'll, I'll just read verses 3 through 8. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old, Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. And I've got a little note too that this you, where it says you must be born again, is plural. That's a problem we have in English because you can be singular or plural and you don't really know. But there's a note here that says the Greek that is translated uh, you here where Jesus says you must be born again is plural. So 
So it's like saying, all of y'all must be baptized. All of y'all must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. Um, I don't you know if some of y'all are old enough to remember. It was an invitation song. You must be born again. That was probably the first song I led when I was growing up. It was about this incident. A ruler once came to the Savior by night to ask him the way of salvation and light. The master made answer in words true and plain. Ye must be born again. Ye must be born again. Ye must be born again. I verily, verily say unto thee, ye must be born again. That's pretty good, huh? It was a long time ago when I did that. But it all, every time I read through this, I remember that, I remember that invitation song. Um, so anyway, Jesus says, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of heaven unless he is born again. Or, now that can be, where it says born again can also be translated born above. The, the, the commentator says this is probably intentionally ambiguous that he chose a term that would be translated either way. Are you born again or are you born from above? Because it's probably both. You are born again, but you're born from above because it's the spirit that's doing it. Um, he mentions that there are two components in this baptism. I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of the water and of the spirit. So two factors involved here, the water and the spirit. What's the spirit doing? Well, the spirit is washing away all that gunk. The spirit is taking away the sin. The spirit is adding you to the church. The spirit is making you a new person. The spirit is doing the work. You know, I said again, or said it before actually several times, baptism, you don't baptize yourself. You are baptized. It's a passive thing. It is done to you, not something you do. A lot of people would like to, to make baptism a work. Well, okay, I can agree with that, but it's not a work you do. It's a work done to you. It's a work done to you by the Holy Spirit. You know, most of us don't even try to get in the water by ourselves. We go in the water with somebody else. And somebody else puts us under the water. But the Spirit's doing the work. <clears throat> Two different things in, uh, involved here, the water and the Spirit. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 and 13, Paul tells the Corinthian brethren, the body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts, and though all of its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ, for we were all baptized by one Spirit into one body. Who did the baptizing? The one spirit. That's what it says there, right? We were all baptized by one spirit into one body. Whether Jew or Greek, slave or free, we were all given the one spirit to drink. So, what do we need to do to be born of the water and the spirit? Well, we just simply need to obey. Um, Paul, writing to Titus in chapter 3, verses 4 through 7, says there, When the kindness of, and love of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us. He does the work. 
God saved us. Not because of the righteous things we'd done, but because of His mercy. So there again, it's back to the grace and the mercy of God. It's not us. What we have to do is come to Him in obedience. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. There it is again. The water and the Holy Spirit. That's when He saved us. Whom He has poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope, or having the hope rather, of eternal life. And Peter in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5, he would say there that praise be to God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Excuse me. And into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power unto the coming salvation that is ready to be revealed at the last time. So, God, through His mercy, has given us a new birth. This new birth, then, has given us an inheritance that is locked away in heaven. Can't spoil, can't fade, nothing can be done away with it. It's locked up there for us. He'd also say later in, in 1 Peter 1, 22 and 23, Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have a sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not a perishable seed, but imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. And then in the next chapter, 1 Peter 2, 1, and, 1 through 3, Therefore rid yourselves of all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander of every kind, like newborn babies, crave spiritual milk, so that you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. You're baptized and you come out of that water, you're a baby, you're a newborn baby. As a newborn baby, you crave milk. And he said, as a spiritual baby, you need to be craving spiritual milk, so that what? So that you can grow in your salvation. So we can grow up spiritually, so that we're no longer tossed to and fro by every wave and wind, wind of doctrine. Now, in um, Romans chapter 6, verses like, like I've said, we've, we've read several times before, but Paul there compares baptism to death. He says we're buried with him through baptism into death in that order, just as Christ was raised from the dead, we also will be raised to a new life. <clears throat> in Colossians chapter 2, 9 through 12, Paul would tell the Colossian brethren, uh, Jesus Christ is all the fullness of deity living in bodily form. And you have been given the fullness of Christ who is the head over every power and every authority. There's that statement again. Jesus is above every rule and every authority. In him you were circumcised by the putting off of the sinful nature. Not a circumcision done with hands of men, but the circumcision done by Christ having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. So there again, baptism, you go in, the spiritual circumcision takes place while you're there, you come out a new creature. Um, in Galatians 3, 26 through 29, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. Now there is no Jew, Greek, slave, free, male, nor female. You are all one in Jesus Christ. 
And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now, at some point we studied this. Maybe when we were, we were in Hebrews, we studied this. But if you remember, the promise that was given to Abraham was about 450 years before the law. That all nations would be blessed through his seed. And Paul points out his seed was not referring to Isaac, but rather was referring to Christ. The writer here says, uh, Paul, guided by the Holy Spirit, if you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What promise was that? The promise given to Abraham. And Paul points out that the coming of the law did absolutely nothing to that promise. That promise was sure, and it's still sure, and it's always going to be sure. And if we are heirs according to the promise, heaven is ours based on God's promise to Abraham 450 years before the law. Now... <clears throat> He will tell us, too, after you have been buried in baptism, you rise up, you walk a new life. The NIV says you live a new life. Uh, the New American Standard and the, the New King James says walk in newness of life. So it's all about doing things the way God wants you to do now because you are saved, not in order to be saved. All the difference in the world. We do right because we're saved. We don't do right to be saved. Okay? Galatians 2.20. Uh, Galatians 2.20 is a verse that you just almost have to sing, too. Um, it's, it's one of those that, as a teenager, we used to sing. We would sing it faster and faster. So you start out slow. I've been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ who liveth in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And then the next time, you have to go just a little bit faster. I've been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ who liveth in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I've been crucified in Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ who liveth in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, etc., etc. You get so fast that you kind of get boggled with the words. But it's fun to do. And not only that, you learn New Testament scripture. Good for you. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. <clears throat> the most important thing we need to remember out of what we've just talked about is that Jesus commands baptism. Matthew 28, Mark 16. Baptism is immersion. That's what the Greek word means. Anything else is what we've tried to make it mean. The word itself is a transliteration. Baptize, baptism is not an English word. Well, I mean, it is now, but it was a created English word in order not to offend the folks who are already doing what they shouldn't be doing. Baptism is immersion. It is for the forgiveness of sins, and for that, then, it must have a candidate who understands sin. It has a candidate who has sinned and one who realizes they are accountable for their actions. 
we must submit to baptism, and in so doing, we submit ourselves to the will of God so that we live a new life following that. Uh, baptism is a new birth. The one who is baptized is a new creation. One is not new prior to baptism because prior to baptism, sin still remains. But after baptism, the sin is washed away, the sin is forgiven. You are a new creature in Christ. Thank you very much for your attention tonight. We'll pick up next week with a little bit more on baptism.